Hey Conjurers, I'm Steph. And I'm Sham. Happy Happy Halloween! Halloween. (coughs) Cultures all over the world have been fascinated by ghosts for as long as people have existed. In the 19th century, ghost stories became especially popular and widely believed as fact, shaping much about the era. But what happens when people take ghost stories too far? Come along as we share three real-life ghost stories that had tragic consequences. Ghosts and hauntings are a mainstream area of belief these days. Recent studies by YouGov in the UK and the US show that up to as much as 50% of the population say they believe in ghosts. A belief in ghosts also appears to be global, with most if not all cultures around the world having some widely accepted kind of ghost. We only need to look at ancient legends to see the belief people held for centuries. In Kenya, a murdered person may become a noma, a spirit who pursues their murderer, sometimes causing them to give themselves up to police. In Russia, the Rusolka is the spirit of a dead woman who died by drowning and now lures men to her death. She may only be released when her death is avenged. In Thailand, it's believed that wicked people will be reborn as a truly terrible night creature called a preta. These beings are the tortured spirits of once living people who were cursed to suffer with an insatiable hunger. This type of ghost appears in many of Asia's ancient cultures under different names. These days, people love to be scared, as long as they know they aren't actually in danger. Halloween TV schedules are full of movies and shows where a group of people spend the night in a haunted house, often with gory results. We seem to enjoy the illusion of danger, and ghost stories offer this kind of thrill. Literature also shows a desire for a practical side of ghosts. Shakespeare's Hamlet and Macbeth detail visits from ghosts seeking revenge for their murders. Alternatively, in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge is helped by the ghosts of Christmas present, past, and future who help him change his ways before it's too late. Ghost stories aren't all intended to scare. Many people are comforted by the thought that their deceased loved ones are watching over them and perhaps guiding them. Our first real-life ghost story is about one man who joins the hunt to rid London of an aggressive ghost and makes a terrible mistake. This is the story of the Hammersmith ghost. I'm always intrigued to find out how most of you try to get rid of ghosts. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, a word of warning. This story is from a very long time ago. Do not do this to get rid of a ghost. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's get into it. Near the end of 1803, many people claim to have seen or even been attacked by a ghost in the Hammersmith area of London, England. Local people said the ghost was a man who had committed suicide the previous year and had been buried in Hammersmith's churchyard. The contemporary belief was that suicide victims should not be buried in consecrated ground, as their souls would not be at rest. The apparition was described as being very tall and dressed in all white. Stories about the ghost soon began to circulate through the area. Two women, one elderly and the other pregnant, were reported to have been physically grabbed by the ghost on separate occasions while walking near the church graveyard. It's reported that they were apparently so frightened they both died from shock a few days after they were attacked. 
A brewer servant named Thomas Groom swore that while he was walking through the church graveyard with a friend one night, close to 9 p.m., something rose from behind a tombstone and grabbed him by the throat. Hearing the scuffle, his friend turned around, at which point the ghost spun him around and disappeared. Um, okay, I've never heard of anybody dying of shock days later. <laughs> okay, this is going to sound harsh, but I feel like people died suddenly a lot back then. Healthcare wasn't exactly readily available. It's more likely that the elderly woman and the pregnant woman, both of which would have been high risk of dying back then, saw a ghost and then died of natural causes shortly after, and people just lumped it all together. Yeah, that sounds about right. And then also, a ghost that grabs you by the throat sounds more like a demon or dark energy to me. That's a lot of power. Yeah, I agree. Well, these appearances became particularly troublesome in the lower part of town near Drovel's Row. Several of the locals took it upon themselves to try and find the ghost with no luck. A man named William Girdler claims he saw the ghost on December 29, 1803. He chased the ghost, but it managed to escape. With London not having a large organized police force at the time and so many people terrified of this ghost, William decided to form armed patrols in hopes of apprehending the spirit. On Tuesday, January 3rd, 1804, William met 29-year-old Francis Smith, a tax collector there on business. While they were both drinking in the White Hart pub, after a few rounds, Francis decided to join the quest to find the ghost. Francis loaded a gun, and he and William discussed a password so they could be sure it was each other and not the ghost. They agreed to say the following. Keep in mind it was 1804. Who come there? A friend. Advance, friend. (laughs) That is almost as bad as just saying the word password. (laughs) This is something only drunk people would come up with. Why was this even necessary? (laughs) I mean, did it work out, though? While, with their secret code in place, William continued on his regular patrol route while Francis went down to Black Lion Lane, where the ghost was most recently reported to be seen. Just after 11 p.m., Francis saw what he assumed was the ghost he had been waiting for. A figure dressed all in white was slowly approaching down the dark street. Francis was shaking from fear when he stammered a warning at the figure. Damn you! Who are you? What are you? Stop, else I'll shoot you! When the figure didn't reply, Francis pulled the trigger and the figure fell to the ground in a heap. The man Francis had shot was no ghost. He was actually 23-year-old Thomas Millwood, a bricklayer who was wearing the normal white clothing of his trade, white linen trousers, a white flannel shirt, and an apparently new, very white apron, all washed very clean and gleaming white. Thomas had been leaving his parents' house on Black Lion Lane after visiting his sister that night. He was headed to the nearby factory to walk his wife home from work after her shift. After saying his goodbyes to his family and walking out the door, his sister Anne had a terrible feeling that something horrible was going to happen to him. She ran to the door to call after him just in time to hear Francis yell for her brother to stop and then to hear the firing of the gun immediately after. There wasn't even enough time between the warning and the shot for Thomas to comply. I love how they assumed that ghosts were literally all white. And did they think a person with a white sheet over their bodies looked like a ghost too? Right? Not to mention, who in their right mind thinks shooting a ghost would do anything? Ghosts are not solid matter. That is literally the main difference between ghosts and people. So what happened after they shot the ghost? (laughs) 
Well, after hearing the shot, neighbors rushed out of their homes to see what was happening. Francis was agitated and almost excited to have been the one to catch the ghost. Neighbors told him to go home, that he was drunk and he had done no such thing. But then a constable arrived at the scene and took Francis into custody, while the neighbors carried Thomas to a nearby inn where a surgeon named Mr. Flower examined the body. He pronounced Thomas's death to be the result of a gunshot wound on the left side of the lower jaw, which had penetrated the vertebrae in his neck, killing him instantly. Thomas's wife arrived and cried that she had warned him to cover up his white clothing in a dark coat, because he had already been mistaken for the ghost on previous occasions. Women had screamed and fainted seeing him walk around at night. Men had threatened him, but he would calmly explain that he was no more ghost than they were and go on his way. He thought the whole thing was silly. Francis didn't seem to feel that he had done anything wrong, until the constable warned him of the consequences of such an act. He then got very upset and said that he had called out twice but had never received an answer, and that night it was very dark. Francis was charged with willful murder, and his trial was scheduled for Friday, January 13, 1804. At the trial, Thomas's sister testified that although Francis had called out to her brother to stop or he would shoot, he fired the gun almost immediately, leaving no time for Thomas to respond. Despite a number of testimonies of Francis's good character, the judge advised the jury that malice was not required of murder, merely an intent to kill. The judge also observed that Francis had neither act in self-defense or shot Thomas by accident. He was not provoked by the supposed apparition, nor had he attempted to apprehend it. Thomas had not committed any offense to justify being shot, and even if he had been pretending to be a ghost, it would not have been an acceptable reason to shoot him. Frightening people while pretending to be a ghost was not a serious felony. It would have been considered a far less serious misdemeanor, meriting only a small fine. Well, I would just suggest that you don't shoot a ghost at all because they're already dead. <laughs> That's not going to do you any good. This judge is spot on. Even if it was a ghost or someone pretending to be a ghost, they don't deserve to be shot. Like, calm down, man. Yeah, he deserved a life sentence in my eyes. <laughs> well, after considering for an hour, the jury returned a verdict of manslaughter. The judge informed the jury that the court could not accept that verdict and that they must either find him guilty of murder or acquit him. He reminded them that the idea that Francis believed Thomas was a ghost was irrelevant. The jury then returned with a verdict of guilty. After sentencing Francis to the customary sentence of death for a murder charge, the judge said that he intended to report the case to the king, who had the power to commute the sentence, which he did. The initial sentence of hanging was commuted to a year's hard labor. The huge publicity given to the case persuaded the true culprit to come forward. The ghost was actually a man named John Graham, a local shoemaker in the area. He had been pretending to be a ghost by wearing a white sheet and hanging out in the cemetery when he knew his apprentice would be walking by after work. He was only trying to frighten his apprentice, who had been scaring his children with ghost stories. He didn't realize that others had seen him and exaggerated the tales. John was never punished for the unintentional hysteria that resulted from his prank. I mean, pretending to be a ghost is very unnecessary and annoying, but if I see a figure covered with a white sheet, I'm not taking that seriously. 
However, this is the 1800s. Clearly, people were way more superstitious back then. But yeah, that guy probably should have just asked his apprentice to stop scaring his kids instead of dressing up like a ghost and hanging out in a cemetery. This whole case is so weird. It's crazy that these were even cases you heard about in court at all. Oh, get this. The question of whether acting on a mistaken belief was a sufficient defense to a criminal charge was debated over the next 180 years until it was clarified at the Court of Appeals in 1984. It was decided that in a case of self-defense, where the self-defense or the prevention of a crime is concerned, if the jury comes to the conclusion that the defendant believed or may have believed that he was being attacked or that a crime was being committed and that force was necessary to protect himself or to prevent the crime, then the prosecution have not proved their case. If, however, the defendant's alleged belief was mistaken and if the mistake was an unreasonable one, the defense should be rejected. The White Hart Pub is reportedly haunted to this day. Landlord Kevin Sheely has said strange things happen in the pub. Apparently, the chef lives upstairs and had been woken up dozens of times by someone calling his name, but no one is ever there. The pub displays a plaque marking the ghostly incident and a report from the Times newspaper in January 1804. Locals say the ghost returns to Hammersmith Churchyard every 50 years. We'll return with the other two ghost stories after this short break. Our second real-life ghost story is another case of a tragic mistaken identity. This is the story of the ghost of Bishop Sagers. Waves of people from around the world arrived in Victoria, Canada during the gold rush in 1858. Many of the people were only passing through, but thousands of opportunists stayed at the fort long-term, turning Victoria into a city overnight. Drinking establishments and brothels sprang up everywhere. A jail soon followed, then came the churches. Most of Victoria's first prayer houses were nothing more than temporary gathering spaces. Grander buildings followed in the decades to come. St. Andrew's Cathedral had first been built in 1884, but a Gothic revival replacement was constructed in 1890. The original cathedral was commissioned by Bishop Sagers as the first official Catholic church on Vancouver Island. Charles Sagers was born in Belgium in 1839. Charles attended a college that was founded to provide America with English-speaking clergymen. He responded to an assignment to travel to Canada to establish the colony of Vancouver Island. He arrived in Victoria in 1863. By 1873, he was officially named Bishop of Vancouver Island. In 1886, Bishop Sagers decided to go on a mission to the remote regions of Alaska in order to, in his words, spread the divine Savior's gospel among the heathens. He brought with him two priests, an Irish assistant, and a French-Canadian laborer. The goal was to travel overland from the Yukon River in order to reach a particularly remote village before the Protestants did. The trek would be a dangerous November journey through harsh weather and over rough terrain. Used to hardship, the priests led by Bishop Sagers embraced the assignment as a matter of faith and duty. They set sail, landed in Alaska, and then started their journey almost immediately. It wasn't long before the Irish assistant, Francis Fuller, began to demonstrate symptoms of what they called insanity. By today's standards, Francis would likely be diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. He heard voices, saying that his travel companions were part of a conspiracy to kill him. When the French laborer disappeared, the priest believed that he had simply become tired of Francis's increasing rantings. 
In later years, reporters would speculate that he might actually have been Francis's first victim. Great. Colonizers harassing innocent natives in order to convert them to Christianity and bring a paranoid schizophrenic to their villages who may be making people disappear. That's just great. <laughs> None of this is shocking news to me. <laughs> so what did they do with Francis? Well, Bishop Sagers believed he could control Francis, despite the concerns of the other priests. Frustrated with the situation, the bishop sent the priests on a side mission while he and Francis carried on with three First Nation guides. On the morning of November 28th of 1886, Francis shot Bishop Sagers through the heart as he leaned over to gather his gear. The man died instantly in front of two other horrified guides. Francis immediately began to act even more bizarre, shaking one of the guides' hands while expressing to them that the man needed to be killed. The guides wrapped up the body and left to get help with Francis willingly going with them. The party reached the village that day. No one knew what to do with Francis, so he was sent to another village for the winter, away from two local white women who had expressed terror at being in his presence. Francis continued to act strangely over the duration of the winter, apparently changing his story about what had happened several times. It wasn't until spring that other priests learned about the bishop's death. By the time the body was recovered from the site of the murder, his face had been partially eaten by mice. Bishop Sager's body was moved to the cemetery at St. Michael's in Alaska and finally buried in July of 1887. The trial against Francis was disappointing, at least for those who loved the bishop. The jury was unable to decide if Francis should be hanged for first-degree murder or if he was not guilty due to reasons of insanity, Instead, they chose to compromise. Francis was convicted of manslaughter, sentenced to 10 years of hard labor, and fined $1,000. People were outraged. They thought the man was either guilty or he wasn't. Francis had admitted to killing Bishop. His reasons for why he did it changed every time he told it. That's an interesting choice. There wasn't medication or therapy that could help him because mental health wasn't understood yet. So it seems like a really light sentence for someone who admitted to committing murder. Especially in those times. I understand mental illness can really take over a person and cause them to cause another person harm. But if there's nothing to prevent them from doing it again, like medication, they need to be locked up. I'm assuming, given the topic of this episode, that Bishop Segers becomes a ghost? In 1888, the Catholic Church had the body of Bishop Sagers exhumed and brought home to Victoria. He was placed in an ebony casket with silver mountings and brought to St. Andrew's Cathedral. The British colonists reported that Victoria gave the body a hero's welcome and people lined the streets. There were rumors that Bishop Sagers had been shot through the head, so the casket was opened in private. The cause of death was confirmed as a bullet wound, but not through the head. Bishop Sagers was placed in a crypt alongside another bishop and a priest. He was finally buried in Victoria, Canada on November 16th of 1888 at St. Andrew's Cathedral. A couple years later in 1890, construction began on the new cathedral in a more modern style for the time. That is also when the rumors started that St. Andrew's Cathedral was haunted. The construction site ended up hiring night watchmen because someone or something was said to be playing pranks on the men at that location. It's uncertain exactly what was happening at that time, but the mischief had given rise to two theories. Some of the men believed that ghosts were to blame, while others felt vandals were coming into the area and moving items around at night. 
According to the British colonists, there was at least one incident where a man was found inside the roped-off area by a night watchman. It is believed that construction can stir up ghosts, and they did bring him back to this beloved church shortly before that. It's possible that the bishop was haunting the place. I mean, for him, it was home, so why not choose to stay there? Absolutely. It sounds like harmless haunting, though, just moving things around. Was that it? During construction, an Irishman named Lawrence Willian was accused of placing a Finian Brotherhood flag up in the construction area. This was apparently to demonstrate his support for the Irish in the United States who were protesting British rule in Ireland. Not surprisingly, laborers were ordered to take the flag down, which pissed off Lawrence. Witnesses claimed that Lawrence said he would make whoever took the flag down pay. That Christmas Eve, Lawrence was selected as the night watchman for the evening. He carried a shotgun as a deterrent, which friends of his said he thought was loaded with a type of blank that would only scare someone away without actually being lethal. As Christmas Mass in the original cathedral building let out, two men in white jackets and bowler hats exited, walking right by Lawrence. One of the men, David Fee, was carrying a toy trumpet that he blew into as they passed him. For reasons that remain unclear to this day, the Irishman lifted his gun and shot David in the stomach. The young man fell to the ground and died in a matter of minutes. Lawrence ran away but later turned himself in. Prosecutors claimed that Lawrence was upset over the flag incident and that he had shot the wrong man in retaliation by mistake. They claimed the intended target who actually took the flag down usually wore a white jacket. The evidence supporting this claim was especially weak. Lawrence's defense lawyer, on the other hand, said that the fear of ghosts was a factor in the shooting. During the trial, he claimed to have mistaken David for a ghost. Lawrence even went so far as to say later that the devil may have come behind him and pulled the trigger. He claimed that he didn't understand how the gun could have gone off. Similar to Bishop Sager's killer, a jury sentenced Lawrence with manslaughter. The judge was upset by the jury's light-handed approach. After a condemning speech, he sent Lawrence away to serve a life sentence. Lawrence was released after serving only 10 years for good behavior. Why is everyone out there trying to shoot ghosts? <laughs> I don't know if his excuse was genuine or not, but either way, manslaughter is a seriously light verdict for randomly shooting someone while they're walking down the street. Yeah, there's more effective ways to banish a spirit, you guys, and it's not gunfire. Exactly. Shooting the ghosts is only leading to creating more ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> Victoria's ghostly walking tours claims that both murder victims have been seen at St. Andrew's Cathedral. It's claimed that David Fee is usually seen on Christmas Eve near the site where he was shot. Some even say they hear a gunshot when they see a ghostly figure. Bishop Sager's ghost, on the other hand, is one of Vancouver's most terrifying sights. He is said to appear as a man in full priest attire who glides across the cathedral's floor from out of the shadows. Sometimes he stands still and stares. Instead of a face or hair or flesh of any kind, the ghost of the priest has a bare-boned smiling skull sitting on his shoulders. The ghost of Bishop Sager would be considered an intelligent haunting because he interacts with people in our current time. These otherworldly beings are often said to exist because they have unfinished business here, or because they don't know they're dead. In either case, the ghost of Bishop Sagers would have to be attached to his physical body rather than where he was killed because the murder took place far away in Alaska. The haunting of the spot where David Fee died may simply be a residual haunting, or in other words, an imprint of the memory of what happened that night. On the other hand, in 2008, another innocent man was shot and killed near the exact same spot. 
The Times colonists reported that there had been a dispute at the Red Jacket nightclub across the street from the site of David's murder. The guilty man claimed in court that the killing had been accidental. He said the victim hadn't been the intended target at all. In fact, no one had even seen him there until the gun went off. Could this murder be yet another coincidence? Or does this spot where tragedy repeatedly strikes have darker energies at play? Mm, interesting. So maybe something is encouraging these random shootings in that spot? It's a weird coincidence. I mean, there are areas in the world that have been known to cause humans to do certain things, so anything's possible. No, thank you. Okay, we have one more story, right? Yes. Our third and final story is an interesting case of fiction-inspiring legend. This is the story of the Maud Carew ghost. In the Suffolk town of Bury St. Edmunds lived Margareta Green. She was the 23-year-old granddaughter of Benjamin Green, who was the founder of the town's famous Green King Brewery. The Green family lived in one of the houses built into the west side of ancient St. Edmunds Abbey. Margareta decided to try her hand as a writer and wrote a short novella called The Secret Disclosed, A Legend of St. Edmunds Abbey. It was privately published in 1861 and intended only for her family and friends. She was proud of her accomplishment, but she had no idea the trouble it was going to cause. The book made its way through the town and became very popular. In the book, she claimed to have discovered a medieval manuscript hidden in a secret compartment built into the walls, which told a tragic story of a nun named Maud Carew. Maud, according to Margareta's book, had fallen in love with a monk at St. Edmund's Abbey called Roger Drury. When she heard that the king's uncle, Humphrey Duke of Gloucester, was proceeding against the monk for sorcery, she was persuaded by the queen to assassinate Duke Humphrey with poison. She did kill the duke before herself, dying from exposure to the toxin. Margareta finished off her story by declaring that at 11 o'clock on the night of February 24th, the supposed day and time of Maud's death, the ghost of Maud is condemned to walk the abbey ruins and the great churchyard. This was complete fiction, but Margareta skillfully weaved her imagination with real events. Duke Humphrey did indeed die in Bury St. Edmunds in 1447 and under mysterious circumstances. On the evening of February 24th of 1862, a large crowd gathered, hoping to catch a glimpse of the ghost. When some in the mob claimed to have seen the ghost, but others called them liars, a fight broke out. And to make matters worse, Margareta's brother dressed up in a sheet to impersonate a ghost and walked through the abbey ruins. He was immediately charged by the crowd and attacked. He narrowly escaped without serious injury. Wow, her novel was so well written that it actually convinced the whole town to go out looking for a ghost that she made up. That's impressive. It reminds me of Amityville Horror. Granted, I do believe any home that many people were murdered in has to be haunted. The book took it to another level, and it's been proven by many families who have lived in that home to be exaggerated. It's so interesting how fiction or exaggerated stories can become legends people really believe. And then that belief almost seems to feed the idea into reality. It is wild. Margareta was so horrified by how out of hand her story had gotten that she never wrote another book. She was proud of her amazing work of fiction, but appalled that it had been taken so literally. But the story of Maud Carew and the riot she inspired raises intriguing questions about the origins of folklore and the beliefs about the supernatural. To this day, people still gather in the great churchyard of the Abbey Ruins on the night of February 24th. Although the details of this story have been largely forgotten, 
The idea of the Grey Lady, sometimes named Maud and sometimes left nameless, haunts the Abbey persists and has become a resilient local legend. The most intriguing question surrounding the book remains unanswered. Margareta clearly invented Maud, but she invented her and her story for a reason. At the start of the original text of the book, Margareta commented on an unexplained experience she and her family had had in the house built into the Abbey. Did the Grey Lady of Bury St. Edmunds predate the book, and Margareta simply gave the ghost a name and a supporting narrative? We'll never know. Do ghosts really exist? I believe they do. Can they be killed with a gun or a punch? Absolutely not. Our understanding of the paranormal has come a long way since the 19th century, but we still don't truly understand the afterlife or ghosts. If you do go looking for ghosts, be respectful and kind. Trust your instincts, but look at every situation with a logical mindset. It can be fun to look for ghosts or to reach out to loved ones lost, but be careful not to fall into the trap of hysteria like the stories we told you today. The Atlantic Paranormal Society, or TAPS, is an organization committed to helping those experiencing paranormal activity. They bring decades of experience in investigating with their pioneering of equipment and techniques that has changed the field of paranormal investigating forever. They are passionate about investigating claims professionally and confidentially, all while implementing the latest in paranormal research equipment and techniques. All research and investigations are performed free of charge. If you or someone you know needs help with ongoing paranormal activity, visit the-atlantic-paranormal-society.com. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Elena. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for the question of the week. Steph, what's our Conjure Tip of the Week? In line with our stories today, I'm going to give you a few tips for going on your own ghost-seeking adventure. First of all, never go alone. Second, choose an accessible location, and if it's private property, get permission to be there. Always shield yourself from spirits that might want to affect you or attach to you. Always talk respectfully to the spirits. Don't be rude or taunting. When you're ready to leave, make sure to cleanse yourself of all energy from the place before you go home. Also, don't go looking for ghost interactions if you're not fully prepared to deal with the consequences of what you might find. And please don't try to shoot any ghosts. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Conjurers, we're on a break for a while, but keep an eye out this Thanksgiving for another bonus episode. Until Until next time. time. Stay vigilant, conjurers. Ah!